Coming up today, we go on the hunt for people who've never caught COVID and take a look at the wild logistics of replacing the Queen's iconography on everything from banknotes to postal vans. You're listening to The Wire Podcast, your essential weekly guide to the future of tech, science, business, and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Grace Brown. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when dozens of images and videos from Grand Theft Auto 6 were leaked online by a hacker. The hacker, allegedly behind the attack, claimed to have access to even more data and has invited executives at developer Rockstar to negotiations to avoid further leaks. It was also the week when a judge in Baltimore overturned the conviction and ordered the release of Adnan Syed for the 1999 murder of his ex-girlfriend Heyman Lee. His case was chronicled in the massively popular podcast Serial. And finally, it was the week when companies taking part in the UK's four-day working week trial said that they would keep the scheme in place once the trial ended. The majority of firms said it is working well for their business, while 95% said productivity had stayed the same or improved during the shorter week. It's the thing that everyone wants, right? The four-day working week. Um, But in practice, doesn't it just mean that people end up working longer days on, on the other four to get one day off? Probably that's the case. Um, it, I think that these like trials that are going on in the UK seem a little bit more positive in terms of uh, some of the results that are coming out. But also there have been, uh, I think one of the things with four day working weeks is it really depends on the company and how they're structured and the type of work because there's been a lot of like, feels like there's been a lot of trials in different countries and some are like, this goes great. It works well. We're doing good because of it. And then others are like, we hate it. And this is not a thing that people should do. Mm. Maybe, I mean, I guess everybody to a degree has done a trial of a four-day working week when they have a bank holiday or a public holiday, right? You have you have the next Monday off, so that means that you need to do extra to kind of catch up, right? Like the days before a long weekend are always kind of a bit busier as you kind of try and squeeze in a little bit of extra stuff. So it's not uncharted territory, but good to see that it being done on such a large scale um, has worked. Maybe it will roll out even further. All right, what did we learn this week? I see an ancient theme. Grace, you first. Um, This week I learned that in ancient Rome, the blood and liver of gladiators was collected as a cure for epilepsy. Uh, Because seizures are typically episodic, it probably just kind of looked like the treatment was working. Um, It was actually documented that spectators would step forward and snatch a piece of liver from a gladiator lying in the dust. And like just hold it or smear it on themselves or (laughs) like take it home and probably i don't know eat it in their sitting room in their sitting room while watching an episode (laughs) of eastenders good all right matt burgess what contemporary fact have you learned ancient greece for my fact um and in the uh ancient olympics around 770 bc um cheetahs used to be called out with statues that were erected in their honor um if someone someone was caught cheating they would have to pay a fine and that money would be used to create uh, a statue of zeus called a zane in this instance um and these statues were placed next to the entrance of the olympic stadium and each of them had the name of the cheetah on them and pointed towards their rule breaking as well it's like an ancient form of trolling. I mean, quite a high bar, seeing as you have to go away and make a statue. But yeah, you're making your point, aren't you? Um, yeah, it's yeah. like a deterrent at the very least. I guess so. 
Um, would would you feel deterred from ever cheating if someone was going to immortalize your um, your cheating in marble? Maybe it's like it's a public <laughs> public shaming, isn't it? It's like if you did something wrong on the internet at the moment, and now somebody tweets about it, and your uh, that tweet is there for all of history, and and people will um, yeah know about what you did wrong, but now but you used to be in statue form. Yes, from images of Zeus to sassy tweets, it's not quite the same. Um, so I actually, <laughs> actually learned something over the last six weeks while I wasn't doing any work. Um, and I'm going to give it to you in the form of a quiz. All right, so answer me this. How many rats are there in London, if you had to guess? This sounds like, a, it sounds like one of those questions they ask you at like an interview for Google. You know, like the piano tuners question, like if every person sees one rat a week... <laughs> multiply that by the population yep. of London. I'm not going to ask you to do maths. Just just have a guess. Have a guess. How many rats? Um, I'm going to say... I'm going to say 100 million. 100 million rats. Matt Burgess? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that's, that's far too high, so I can probably come a lot <laughs> further down um, and be fine. So I'm going to go with, yeah, 7 million. It's 20 million. So Matt Burgess, you are <clears throat> you are closer, <laughs> um, but neither of you were especially close. Okay, so that's twenty million ish rats, and depending on how you measure it, London is six hundred and seven square miles. Okay, so twenty million rats, six hundred and seven square miles. Okay, now let's do some maths. Next question: How many rats are there in the Canadian province of Alberta? To help you out. Alberta is 255,541 square miles. London is 607 square miles. So how many rats are there in Alberta? I, I'm going to go first this time, and I'm going to say that the size doesn't really matter in this instance because okay. you um, you're comparing somewhere that's a hell of a lot bigger and might not be as sort of built up as London with uh, sort of all of the, the rubbish and the housing and industrial yep. stuff, whatever. Yep. Uh, so I'm going to say 7 million. 7 million rats again, right? The same amount, yeah. Okay, yes. cool. Yeah. Grace? Um, I distinctly remember you saying we don't have to do maths. Uh, but sorry, I'm also not going to do maths and I think maths logic <laughs> checks out. <laughs> um, and I'm going to go for... 20 million. 20 million. N neither of you are anywhere near in this occasion. It's zero. <laughs> there are no rats in the whole of Alberta. So what? Alberta has been rat-free since 1950, thanks to a somewhat aggressive provincial rat control program. So if anyone in Alberta ever spots a rat, they can report it to the authorities. There's a special rat spotting hotline. Um, and it's also illegal to own a pet rat in Alberta. So, I mean, there probably are some rats, right? Because they're going to get over thousands and thousands of miles of provincial borders. But technically, there are no rats in Alberta. So there wow. you go. Maths and rats. Moving swiftly on. Our first story this week is about COVID, not rats, or ancient Greece, or Rome. This time we're talking about COVID virgins, or novids, as we might like to call them. These are people who have defied all logic and somehow dodged the coronavirus. Now, because I work closely with you guys, I know that you've both caught COVID. Um, but do you know anyone that hasn't at this point? I'm going to say n no. I feel like there's very few people. Like my um, 
some of my family work in a school and they uh schools have obviously been a high place for transmission over the last couple of years but um they managed to work there for a long time in the school without getting covid and but then even in the last six eight weeks or so they've come down with it as well yeah sort of similar for me i managed to dodge it for two years of the pandemic or seemingly dodge it for, for two years of the pandemic i might have caught it and just not had any symptoms um and then a couple of weeks ago i got it um which kind of checks with what other people have been saying. Yeah, I didn't catch it for a really long time. And then in the last couple of months, everyone I know got it if they hadn't already. How about you, Grace? Um, funnily enough, actually, um, when I had it, I was it was at Christmas time and I had to isolate in my room and my sister also had it. She gave it to me. But my mom never got it, even though she kept breaking the rules and coming into my room. And I would say, mom, get out, you know, two meters on my setting. <laughs> and she'd be like, oh, I just feel so bad for you. And she'd like bring me food and stuff like that. Um, so despite her overbearingness, she never tested positive. Um, but I'm also not positive that she was testing correctly. Mm. I, I don't trust her testing abilities, which I, th- I kind of think whenever anybody tells me that they haven't had it, I'm like, I bet you just weren't testing or were testing incorrectly or something like that. So if, uh, if your mum listens to the podcast, um, Grace's mum, <laughs> we're very sorry, but Grace doesn't trust you. Um, okay, so maybe there's, there's a chance though, right, that your mum is part of this cohort of people who have something going on within their bodies that means they're either very, very unlikely to catch COVID or they just never will. So yeah, when I I started writing this story about um, people who, it's not just people who, you know, um, have been 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 safe, you know, social distancing, wearing masks, you know, practicing a lot of like judicious, judicious caution. This is about people who, despite all odds so they should have gotten COVID like basically they had people spitting in their mouths every single day and they managed to not test positive um which kind of speaks to something more going on rather than just you know luck there's something possibly going on biologically that's um defending them from COVID um and there's actually a bunch of scientists around the world who have studied this not just for COVID but for previous viruses as well um and they specifically look at the genetics of people and see if there's something going on in their genetic makeup that could explain something that's called inborn resistance to infection. Um, So in the very early days of the pandemic, like within the first week or so, these scientists kind of got together. um, And, you know, for them, um, this is, you know, while it was devastating, of course, as well for the whole world, this was a really interesting kind of real-time experiment playing out for them. A really good example of um, you know, a virus that's extremely transmissible. And they knew there was going to be people that were probably not going to get infected. So they're like, great, let's study this. Um, first off, they kind of um, were just looking specifically at people at the opposite end of the spectrum who were getting severely ill with COVID, which is another thing that they think had a, a big genetic component. I think they said it was like 20% of severe cases of COVID had some kind of genetic explanation for it. So something in people's genes that meant that they were really susceptible to, you know, ending up in ICU with a case of COVID. Um, So yeah, they came together. It's quite a tight-knit community of scientists and they set up this um, consortium called the COVID Human Genetic Effort. Um, But while into their research, while they were looking for these people who were getting severely sick with COVID, they began to notice the kind of opposite effect as well. 
specifically they kind of noticed that the spouses or partners of the people who were ending up in ICU um, were not getting sick at all they weren't testing positive even though you know like my mom they were tending to their partners every day sleeping next to them even this is you know early stages of the pandemic so nobody had masks nobody had vaccines um, so really you know they again like like you said they defied all logic in not ending up um, getting infected with COVID so this presented a really interesting scientific puzzle to these scientists um, so they ended up setting up this kind of separate arm of the consortium um, that set out to investigate these individuals to see if they could elucidate, elucidate if there was something in their genetics that could explain their miraculous immunity. And this isn't uncharted territory right I think you mentioned at the top that this kind of work has been applied to other diseases but I guess with COVID the difference is that so many people have caught it there's been so much of it going round that we ought to be able to find quite a large cohort of people with a genetic advantage that means that they might not get it yeah i mean from speaking to the scientists who've worked in this field for you know decades finding the people in the first place has always been the most difficult part so that's actually where covid came in really handy it was pretty easy to find these people because you know so many people were getting affected and it was all anybody was talking about um but um, yeah, like like you said, um, you, this is something that they've studied before. Um, it's but in the grand scheme of immunology, it is kind of a this concept of inborn resistance against infection is kind of a new and slightly niche focus. Um, one of the scientists I spoke to said that it kind of gets poo pooed on that like immunologists don't view it as like real immunology and geneticists don't view it as real genetics. So they all kind of have to like stake out their own little territory. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you said, like this wasn't uncharted territory. Um, there was there was good rationale as to why this kind of inborn resistance against COVID could exist. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's kind of a new a new field. So so far, they've only found three examples of it. Um, they found genetic mutations that grant natural immunity to HIV, to norovirus, and to a parasite that causes reoccurring malaria. So given that they've they found three examples, they were kind of like, why would COVID be any different? Yeah, especially when it's circulating so widely. But the question then is, even with so much of it going around, how do you go about finding those individuals? I mean, we mentioned right at the top that either ourselves or people that we know, friends, family, have somehow managed to seemingly not catch COVID for a really long time until quite recently, right? And even though I was very cautious during the first couple of years of the pandemic, once, like a, a few months after restrictions lifted, I kind of went back into society and started going to pubs and restaurants and big events, seemingly never caught COVID, sat on a transatlantic flight, somehow didn't catch COVID, went through busy airports, somehow didn't catch COVID. <clears throat> and then a couple of weeks ago, somehow somewhere i caught covid so i fit the bill it seemed for more than two years and then all of a sudden i didn't so how do you go about separating the people who have just been lucky from the people who aren't being lucky they've got an advantage yeah um so this is obviously like the big question how do you kind of like elucidate the difference between all these people um in october 2021 they put out a pr proposal paper in um nature the journal nature in which they kind of like outlined their endeavor what they're hoping to do and at the end they put in just kind of like a you know a throwaway final line where they mentioned that subjects from all over the world were welcome to get in touch if these, if you felt like you kind of fit that bill um, the leader of the project who I spoke with, a, a scientist called Andrew Spahn, said that the response was 
completely overwhelming. Like they had included their, you know, professional email addresses, um, kind of not really thinking that anybody would read the paper or the general public would read the paper again in touch. But he said like the response was wild. They He got thousands and thousands of emails, so much so that like he couldn't read any of his emails. <laughs> um, and people were literally writing in from all over the world in different languages um, saying that they, you know, kind of like you, like just, just despite all odds, hadn't gotten COVID. Um, the response was so overwhelming that they set up a kind of multilingual uh, screening survey that they could direct applicants to instead of, you know, their personal inboxes. <laughs> um, and so far they've had about 15,000 applications. But, um, you know, like you referenced um but what's the difference between people who have, you know, some genetic key lurking in their genome versus people who maybe just are very, very lucky and haven't had, um, managed to get a COVID infection. Um, so in order to kind of weed out these people, they set up some strict criteria. Um, the people who they who signed up, um, they had to fill out a survey and in the survey they asked um you know, what was the condition in which they thought they evaded the virus. The best kind of scenario were people who um, should have, were at very, very high risk of catching COVID. So healthcare workers, which makes sense, you know, people who are dealing with COVID infected people every single day um, and people who lived with or even better shared a bed with um, people who were confirmed to be infected with a PCR test. Um, also, um, you know, like you said, you could you could have COVID and not display any symptoms or um, yeah, you just don't know that you had it. So in order to um, weed these people out, they had to have no antibodies against COVID um, in their bloodstream, which means that, uh, you know, while mass vaccination has been on the whole an amazing thing, it does kind of limit who they can recruit because that means they, everybody who they include in the study has to have had this intense exposure to COVID before they received the vaccine. Um, so that kind of brings the number of people they can include in the study way down because obviously the vaccine would um, give you antibodies. Um, so of the thousands that kind of flooded in after the call, about 800 to 1,000 people actually fit that really, really tight bill. Yeah, I was wondering about this, like how they took people who had like a bit of a supposition that they might be um, a novid or whatever and separated out from people who actually might be so in my instance i caught covid because my wife caught covid she got it first we were in the same basement flat and a few days later i was like mm, don't seem to be catching it i think two or three days after she tested positive lo and behold i tested positive as well so they have a substantial study cohort 800 to 1000 people that's a lot of a lot of people for a, a scientific study like this so what happens next um so they kind of it's kind of a, a two-fold approach that they're taking first they're gonna you know take those 800 to 1000 people and they're still recruiting by the way so that number might go up and the problem actually with omicron arriving is that it kind of decimated the cohort that they had because you know they had this like big meaty group of people who they're like, wow, this really seems like they might have genetic resistance. And then Omicron came and then they lost, I think, like half of their cohort. Um, you know, they just were getting emails every single day from people being like, hey, sorry, I actually just tested positive. <laughs> um, 
but so so what they're still recruiting because their number kind of goes down every day so they're hoping to re- continue to recruit so the number of that 800 to 1000 kind of stays level um but the first step they're going to do is kind of just blindly run everybody's genome through a computer to see if there's any uh gene variation that starts to come up frequently kind of like throwing whatever at the wall and seeing what sticks um and then at the same time they kind of take a more targeted approach so they'll look specifically at an existing list of genes that they suspect might be the culprits genes that if you know different from usual would just kind of make sense to give resistance so an example of this would be the gene that codes for the ACE2 receptor which is a protein on the surface of cells that um, SARS-CoV-2 uses to slip inside and make photocopies of itself Um, so that's kind of like an example of a gene that like if it were mutated could explain resistance. So the the consortium has about 50 sequencing hubs around the world, um, from Poland to Brazil to Italy, where the, the data is going to be crunched. Um, so while enrollment is still ongoing, they are going to have to decide at a certain point um, that they have enough data to be able to move deeper into the research. Um, so that's kind of going to look like they're going to have, you know, like a list of maybe like 20 to 30 genetic mutations that are maybe cropping up. Um, a bunch in all the people that they've enrolled Um, and the next step beyond that is going to um, be doing what are called cell model studies um, which is a really really nerdy way of just kind of like um, testing testing in cells um, whether this genetic mutation um, actually does um, cause some kind of resistance to a COVID infection. And in terms of raw data we're not just talking about a few lines in an excel sheet right this is a heap of genetic data that they're going to have to go through and i imagine as with a lot of genetic research this is a little bit like finding a needle in a haystack right it might not be that there's just one mutation but in amongst all of this data they're looking for something very 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 small so how do they go about refining all that data down into those key data points that they want to focus on. Yeah, so they'll they'll have this list and then it's going to be a case, I imagine, just like they have the list and they just like cross it out as they go, as they're doing these, these kind of cell model studies that I mentioned. Um, it'll just be a case of narrowing and narrowing that list down. Um, and that process is probably going to take about four to six months, um, the scientists I spoke to said. Um, one kind of complication, or you could view it as an advantage as well, is that the cohort is incredibly global um and uh we know that um genetics uh changes a lot depending on your ethnicity um so it's probably not going to be the case that everybody has the exact same genetic mutations that give them resistance you know people in slavic countries won't necessarily have the same gene as people of southeast asian ethnicity um uh, one of the scientists that I spoke to said they're not just looking in that case for like a needle in a haystack. They're looking for uh, you know, a bunch of different needles um, in a factory of haystacks. <laughs> um, and they also mentioned that it's probably not going to be one gene in the end that does confer resistance, but it's probably going to be an array of genetic variations that are kind of coming together to grant immunity. And they're doing this kind of goes without saying they're doing this for a purpose, right? They're not just going to find these people and go, that's nice. You are very unlikely to ever get COVID. There's there's a payoff here. So are we going to get some funky genetic treatment for COVID or maybe even a treatment that makes everybody immune to COVID so that it just stops circulating? Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, the, the whole point of this is to find maybe another, another way of treating COVID beyond just vaccines. Um, and there's good reason to think that they might be able to find new drugs to treat COVID. In the 90s, actually, a group of uh, sex workers in Kenya um, were failing to become infected with HIV during three years of follow-up um, research. And this obviously was very bizarre. They, these people should have, you know, all likelihood probably con- um, contracted HIV. Um, so they did the kind of same research that they're doing with these people now. They looked at their genetic makeup and they ended up finding this genetic mutation that produces um, a messed up version of the protein called the CCR5 receptor, which is one of the proteins that HIV uses to um, get into a cell and make copies of itself. So having this mutation meant that these sex workers um, weren't able to contract HIV. They kind of had natural resistance against HIV. Um, and then this actually went on to inspire um, an antiretroviral that's used to treat HIV infection today um, and also informed uh, the, probably the most promising cure that we have for HIV. Um, so far, we've had two patients that have received stem cell trump, uh, transplants from a donor carrying this mutation and have been uh, declared HIV free, which you know has been one of the most revolutionary medical treatments um, in the recent history. So it's possible that we could do the same thing with COVID. You know, the vaccines are great, um, but you know they have their flaws. Um, and imagine if we could stop people from getting infected in the first place. That would be miraculous. It's a pretty big if, um, but there's a, a strong belief that you know, once we find enough of these people, that there may be ways that we can take that genetic advantage and turn it into a treatment, um, as has been the case or seems to be the case with HIV. Um, but genetics doesn't tell the whole story of why some people resist infection to covid or or a bunch of other diseases right there there's another thing that's at play here yeah so um it might not be that everybody is carrying some random genetic mutation um there could be something else on the immunology side that could t- explain why they are kind of dodging the virus um so during the first wave of the pandemic, the scientist called Malamani, um, who's a professor of viral immunology at University College London, um, she uh, began to it, intensively monitor a group of healthcare workers um, who theoretically probably should have been infected with COVID, but for some reason hadn't been. Um, and they also had this kind of uh, big bunch of blood samples um, from a separate cohort of people that had been taken well before the pandemic. Um, and when they looked at uh, these two in tandem, they found that um, there was this kind of secret weapon lying in their blood called uh, memory T cells. And they kind of sound like what you think they might be. They're immune cells that um, uh, T cells themselves form kind of the second line of defense against um, a foreign invader. Um, aka you know something like SARS-CoV-2 um, and memory t-cells specifically kind of lie dormant from a previous encounter with other coronaviruses such as the ones you know that caused the common cold um, and they published a paper on this that uh, that these two cohort, cohorts of people were carrying these memory t-cells and they theorized that this could be providing cross protectivity against SARS-CoV-2 um, she came up with this great analogy for um, how these memory T cells work. Uh, it, it's kind of if you, if you compare it to a car, you know, if a car is unlike one that you've driven before, say that you've always driven an automatic and someone tells you to drive a manual, it would be pretty difficult, right? Um, 
it would take you a while to get to grips with how the controls work. But assume that these pre-existing team cells are lifelong automatic drivers and the SARS-CoV-2 encounter is like hopping into the driver's seat of an automatic car. You can see how they could immediately launch a really, really quick and strong attack against SARS-CoV-2. So a previous seasonal coronavirus infection or what they call an abortive COVID infection, you know, it's basically meaning a failed COVID infection, like COVID, SARS-CoV-2 entered your body, but wasn't able to take hold. Um, it creates these T cells that could offer this kind of pre-existing immunity. Uh, but they're uh, very, very keen to clarify this does not mean that you don't um, have to get vaccinated on the off chance that you might be carrying these T cells. Yeah, it's like an extra layer of protection, right? So everybody should get vaccinated if they can, and everybody should get boosted if they can. But the the, the idea of um, harnessing the power of the immune system to tackle diseases, I, mean, I, I was going to say it's nothing new. It is quite new, but it's not novel, right? And it remains completely mind-blowing. So there are T-cell therapies for cancer, for example, that are so powerful that somebody who is riddled with cancerous cells can have this T-cell therapy and it effectively wipes cancer from their body almost overnight. But one of the challenges with these therapies is because they're so powerful, it's really, really difficult to get the balance right and not end up killing the patient in the process of administering them with, with a treatment that is this aggressive. COVID's a different beast to cancer, but the same challenges remain. So how do we go about getting this T-cell puzzle right for COVID? And is there potential that we might be able to develop some sort of T-cell treatment that doesn't cost millions of dollars? Yes, kind of throughout the whole pandemic, there's been this kind of um, two camps have kind of emerged. I think one camp on the antibody side and one camp on the T-cell side. They both kind of do different things in the immune response. Um, I think some immunologists would kind of reject this dichotomy that there are two camps, but uh, I think maybe journalists have created it. But um, basically, uh, Mainy, the scientist who I spoke about earlier, is really advocating for the T-cell the argument that we should really be harnessing these T-cells in a vaccine. Um, right now, the vaccines that we have are based on the spike protein. So this is harnessing the antibodies that we create against SARS-CoV-2. Um, and she's saying, hey, what about these amazing T-cells that we have? Why, not, why don't we take advantage of them? Um, so she's actually working on a vaccine with some researchers at Oxford University that um, would, uh, in essence, induce these T-cells. And specifically, she wants to induce them in the mucous membranes of the airway, so basically our throats. Um, uh, and because this is where um, a COVID infection first kind of takes hold. Um, and if you were to create a vaccine based on these T-cells, it would theoretically not just protect against SARS-CoV-2, it could actually protect against a variety of coronaviruses. So it would be, and I'm sure listeners have heard this term before, kind of like a pan-coronavirus vaccine. Um, such a vaccine could probably stop COVID virus from wriggling out of the vaccine, the existing vaccine's reach, because while the spike protein, um, has, as we've seen, has been very liable to mutate, annoyingly, um, T-cells target bits of the virus that are very, very highly conserved across all human and animal coronaviruses um, and like I said a mucosal vaccine could prepare these t-cells in the nose and the throat which is kind of like ground zero of infection so it gives COVID basically the worst shot possible at taking root. This whole discussion to date has been quite positive. COVID has some positives right good things have come of this horrible thing that has happened over the last few years but it remains a horrible 
thing. So it's kind of worth keeping that in mind. And, and you mentioned there, right, this dream of a, of a pan-coronavirus vaccine is a little bit of a dream, especially, as you say, when COVID keeps on irritatingly mutating and dodging um, existing immunity, be it for infection or vaccines, right? We should also mention that alongside this quite large cohort of people who are seemingly have a genetic advantage that means that they don't get COVID or they have T-cell immunity against COVID. There are also plenty of people with long COVID. There are people with existing health conditions for whom catching COVID is still very, very serious. So this is really, really important work, developing better defences against COVID that could be rolled out at scale could be huge, even if people feel like, as Joe Biden said last week, quote unquote, the pandemic is over. It really isn't. And this work is really important, right? Yeah, for sure. I think from speaking to other vaccine developers and immunologists in this space, I think they're really trying to capitalize on this kind of uh, very, very probably momentary intense focus on um, vaccines and immunology and protection against future pandemics and infectious disease and all that kind of stuff. Um, so this idea of like a pan-coronavirus vaccine is not a new thing that they kind of just occurred to scientists in the middle of the pandemic. Like this is probably something they've been clamoring for for a while to finally get funds to try and develop it. Um, so kind of like what Maney's work is doing, um, there are a whole bunch of scientists all over the world trying to come up with a pan-coronavirus vaccine. But like you said, it is kind of a bit of a dream Um you know, how nice would it be to have one of those? Because um, like you said, uh, while the vaccines that we have now are amazing, um, they, uh, they, we are constantly trying to outsmart the virus that clearly is just a little bit smarter than us. Um, like we've seen with the recent rollout of the Omicron targeted boosters, we're kind of playing a cat and mouse game with COVID at the moment and it just keeps outsmarting us. Um, and constantly updating the vaccine probably just isn't sustainable in the long run. Um, so that's the kind of the whole idea behind a pan-coronavirus vaccine. We wouldn't need to keep tweaking the vaccine as we're basically running through the entire Greek alphabet. <laughs> and plus, and it's big plus, um, such a vaccine could work against all coronaviruses um which is really important to keep in mind because uh this is probably no this is definitely not the last pandemic that we'll see and it could be that the next pandemic is another coronavirus pandemic and what if we had a defense before it even started that would be great (laughs) it's a, a note of optimism and pessimism there will probably be another coronavirus pandemic but hopefully all the work we've done so far and the work that is still ongoing will mean that we're a whole lot better prepared. So um, let's put it out to the listeners. Have you somehow managed to avoid COVID despite, I think, Grace, as you put it right at the top, despite people spitting in your mouth on a daily <laughs> basis, um, however that works? Um, yeah, let us know. Podcast at wired.co.uk. And if you want to join the study, there's a link to all the details in Grace's story. And we'll include a link to the story, of course, in the show notes. Our second story this week is about the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, and specifically it's about the logistical challenge of changing every icon, every emblem, every cipher, every place that we see her face, um, not just in the UK, but around the world. And it's a pretty common sight. So this is a not insignificant challenge, Matt Burgess. 
Few people in human history have been depicted or symbolised as widely as Queen Elizabeth II, and that's not just within the UK either, but also across the other 14 Commonwealth realms which the British monarch is head of state. Um, but now uh, King Charles is in place, things are going to have to change, and there'll be some of those things that change very quickly in terms of uh, the icons where Elizabeth is shown in um, British life, and some that take a little bit more time. So a quick rundown of some of the more uh, smaller or immediate changes that things are already underway. So pretty much straight away after Queen Elizabeth's passing, the national anthem changed automatically to God Save the King instead of God Save the Queen. Uh, and the words were changed in, in that straight away. Um, people's passports are going to be issued uh, in the King's name and not the Queen's name instead. Um, so some of the wording inside is going to change for new passports that are being issued. And also uh, the helmets of police officers in the UK are also going to have the King's face on instead of the Queen's face. Today I learned that Police helmets in the UK have the Queen's face on them. Really? I'm going to have to go and look that up. Um, okay, so lots of faces, lots of ciphers, lots of insignia. Um, and as you mentioned, not just in the UK, but around the world. So um, now I'm in Canada. I haven't quite managed to escape the royal family. Um, the Queen's face is on banknotes. Certain highways here are symbolised with um, like a crown insignia, the sort of raw highway number XXX. Um, and I imagine that just the number of banknotes just in the UK that need replacing eventually, not immediately, but eventually, is quite large. Yeah, there are. So there are 4.5 billion sterling banknotes in circulation with the Queen's face on them in just the UK, uh, and that's com uh, that's worth about a combined uh, eighty billion pounds. And replacing them with alternatives featuring uh, the head of the new monarch is likely to take a couple of years at the very least. So uh, the Royal Mint, which is in charge of the currency and stuff in the UK, is already working on this. Um, but when uh, to give you a, a, an idea of how long this process might take and sort of like what is involved in the transition, um, when the latest uh, synthetic plastic uh, fifty pound banknotes were issued in the UK a few years ago, um, the process of recalling all existing paper uh, banknotes took and replacing them took about, uh, the Bank of England took about 16 months. So it's quite a long process. And um, in the past, before all British coins were updated for de uh, decimalization in 1971, it was actually quite normal to find multiple monarchs uh, on the change that existed. Um, so that would have been in the earliest part of Queen Elizabeth II's reign, there would have been lots of coins in circulation that had uh, different uh, or previous uh, the previous king on as well. Um, but for the change that we're going to see starting to come now, the process pretty much goes like this. So a team of designers will uh, first present uh, a portrait of Charles III in profile uh, to the king. His head will be facing left in this profile, which follows the tradition of uh, successive monarchs facing in ultimate alternating directions on coins, sorry. And the king will look over this design and likely approve it uh, very quickly. Uh, it will then be uh, adopted by the Royal Mint and pressed onto the re reverse of every new coin. And separately, the Bank of England will start printing banknotes depicting the king. So um, there's a couple of different processes and groups involved there, but um, the, it will start to happen pretty soon, but take a long time for uh, just the processing of the amount of coins and, and uh, banknotes to come back into the system and then be replaced while you were talking about banknotes i was looking at police helmets i'm sorry matt but the queen's face is not on police helmets i mean that would it, it seemed unlikely and it, indeed it is it's kind of it's e 
R with the Roman numeral two inside. Um, so Elizabeth Regent, kind of what I think what you see on post boxes. Maybe it would have been really fun if it was the Queen's face on a police helmet, but alas, it's not. Anyway, um, let us move swiftly on. Banknotes sorted, police helmets kind of sorted. But what about that other bastion of the analogue age, the lovely postage stamp? So every postage stamp since 1967 has featured the side profile of the Queen, and she's also been involved in the uh, approving of new stamp designs. Um, Some of the most recent stamp designs, uh, which uh, the Queen was allegedly involved uh, in the approval of, although it could have equally been somebody in her staff, uh, were around the uh, Transformers movies. Um, So they were released... uh, pretty uh, recently really um but all stamps that exist with the queen's head on remain valid for use um so if people have them they they can keep using them for now um which is very much sort of the same as banknotes and coins and everything but eventually new stamps featuring charles suffer's likeness will come into production uh, the royal mail says that there is a clear direction that they've been given by the king's team um and this won't come as a surprise they said uh, that there is there should be as little unnecessary expense as possible done in the sort of like creation of the new stamps and phasing out the old ones. So um, I think for stamp collectors and people out there, if you're looking for uh, stamps with the Queen's face on, that you will still be able to get them for quite a while yet uh, until the sort of transition happens. Um, um, but also as well as stamps, there's there are other parts of the postage uh, system that uh, bear the Queen's insignia and ciphers and all of that. Um, there are 53,000 Royal Mail vehicles, uh, which includes trucks and delivery vans and all types of uh, other delivery systems as well that carry the Queen's cipher. And over time, these will also be updated to the cipher of the new king. While you were talking about stamps, I was looking at the Transformers series of stamps that were approved by Queen Elizabeth. They're very nice, but the the idea of her sitting down to approve Transformers-themed stamps is slightly hard to believe. But, you know, they're out there, and they do, as you say, have a little queen head in the bottom corner, which will soon be a little king's head. Okay, so there's one thing in the UK that won't be... Well, there's probably a bunch of things, but for the purposes of this, there's one thing that won't be replaced post boxes right once post boxes are put in place unless they break or whatever they stay the same so they're not going to be ripped out are they they're not and there's actually 115,000 uh, post boxes around the UK uh, which is like a, a good number more than I would sort of have expected I think but um, and most of these around 60% carry the Queen's cipher uh, although there are still some that feature the ciphers of previous monarchs including uh, Victoria um, so I guess the reason why they won't be changed is because post boxes stay on the corner of streets or wherever they're placed and don't really uh, need any work doing to them at all or anything like that. They're big uh, metal uh, boxes that just sit there and, yeah, people collect letters, postmen collect letters out of them, people put letters into. So there's not any real need or rush to change them. Um, And only a few uh, hundred new post boxes are installed every year in the UK. Um, So it's not like they're being replaced or changed uh, over time time so yeah if there are new um post boxes then they will have charles's charles Verde's iconography on it but um we're not going to rip up all the old ones yeah i mean that would just be foolish and as we've mentioned a couple of times this isn't just a uk thing um here in montreal uh signs that the queen passed away were well 
somewhat limited in the part of the city that that I live in. I think I saw a couple of flags at half mast, but it's not as if there's um, sort of pictures up in every window and um, grand galas going on and stuff like that. And it's also worth saying that you know the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. This is straying slightly out of wide territory, but whatever. Um, is an opportunity for some countries to um, consider whether they want to be part of the Commonwealth, whether they want the British royal family to remain their head of state and we're likely to see some Commonwealth nations having referenda to become republics so that's the thing that's going on as well and something else that might happen before those referenda take place if indeed they do is the phasing out of royal iconography throughout the Commonwealth as these former colonies start to kind of move further towards full independence. Yeah. So as you as you as you sort of say there, sort of phasing out the Queen has been happening uh, for decades in some former Commonwealth countries. Various nations have uh, modernised and moved away from the trappings of the British Empire already, and there are likely to be other ones that will uh, continue to do so and hold referendums and referenda, as you say, uh, to actually uh, do that. Um, but as as we have pointed out as well, sort of like coins and banknotes and things in Canada and also Australia and New Zealand and a few other places still carry her likeness and i think that as with any of these things we've discussed here uh relating to the uk there's probably not going to be a wholesale change of countries uh instantly swapping things out if they want to uh and when they do or it may may also lead to sort of like bigger deeper conversations about sort of the role of uh the queen as a head of state in other countries so yeah for some countries it's going to be a moment to be able to um reflect on i guess where they are and sort of like what type of country and nation they want to be and affiliation to the UK going forward as well. If you want to get into all of the wild logistics of replacing the Queen's face on all and sundry, we'll include a link to the full story in the show notes. And do get in touch with the show. I don't think there was much in the podcast inbox this week, which always makes us terribly sad. It's podcast at wired.co.uk. We do love to hear from you. Um, I guess we're particularly interested this week in hearing from people who still haven't caught COVID, um, even though they really should have. Podcast at Wired. .co.uk That's it for this week. We'll be back again same time next week. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye. 